So this morning we look to First uh, Peter, and I want to I want to introduce it as we have just read it. Um, it is an epistle where Peter deals with uh, the features of Christian hope, the features of Christian hope. And for our brief time together this morning, I would like to draw out just an introduction for you uh, to this particular epistle, and then equally so, uh, draw out some implications of the world that you face today. Uh, but one thing we can be certain is that there are no shortages of men who in this hour step forward to offer hope, that there are always people launching forward to say that they have, uh, that they have the way to unlock a certain hope. And they tell you to fix your hope uh, on certain facets. Some come before you and tell you to fix your hope on the calendar change, the fact that the year itself has become a new year. Some ask you to fix your hope uh, on things returning to quote-unquote normal. Some ask you to fix your hope on other facets. Fix your hope on a vaccine for an illness. Fix your hope on many, many features. And unfortunately, that is to sell a pseudo-hope. That's to sell a false hope. You can hear these voices offering and peddling this false hope along the lines of modern evangelicalism. Uh, you can hear the voice of Islam, the voice of secular humanism, which is a rising voice today that offers a false hope. Uh, you can hear the voice of the Roman Catholic or any other leader or guru religious or otherwise, and they try to peddle this hope to you. They tell you to hope, hope for a better tomorrow. We're all in this together. All their mantras and key phrases. And they're selling a false hope. They're peddling a hope. But I tell you this morning that for the Christian, if the Christian desires to possess hope, true hope, one must come to the truth and know that this true hope is tied to a position and a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Because apart from a salvific, a salvific uh, position in him, there is no hope. There is no hope. And Peter knew something of this. Because during the time in which this particular epistle, this letter was written, the known world, especially Christians, were under the crushing weight of the Roman Empire. The hopeless tyranny of the empire itself. And as we even investigate and research the facts of church history, we can discover that Peter himself was promised a death under this regime, but he suffered a gruesome death as a martyr under the wicked and diabolical rule of the Roman Caesar Nero. Paul shared in that same blessed martyrdom, although at a different time, but under the same circumstances, he had his death by execution. But these were men who were putting before Christians true hope, even though their lives were to end in, uh, in martyrdom. But even though this epistle, as it's written, and the occasion that it's written, even though it was written to those who were suffering under the weight of Roman Empire, uh, of the Roman Empire, the Apostle Peter did not call for men to hide in his person, and he did not call for men to hide in his ministry, as so many personality cultists are prone to do today, especially in times of tremendous suffering. Peter established the new birth to be born again in Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit as the sure foundation and the hope within every believer in the midst of unspeakable trials and relentless oppression. That is the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is not catchphrases emotionalism, 
having people hide in your person as you pretend to be quote-unquote courageous, although surrounded by uh, a team of people who keep you safe, it is to actually point people in the midst of danger that you befall yourself for identifying with Christ and pointing them to the fact that uh, the trials uh, ultimately propel them forward, not only in Christ, but into glory to be with him. And that's what the apostles did. That's what the apostles did. And so it is imperative for ministers of the gospel to follow the line of the apostles and for the Christians to whom they serve to be pointed to the same reality that the apostles pointed to that early generation of believers. Peter did not call in this epistle as as we'll look at it in the uh, maybe next week as we continue in this. Peter did not call for the hope of better days simply because one's outlook is geared toward the hope of better days ahead. This very cyclical treadmill approach uh, that people are being told to hope for a better tomorrow. Just because in hoping for a better tomorrow, somehow that better tomorrow will materialize. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Hustlers who come along and try to pretend that they're Christian preachers at times teach that, but the Bible doesn't teach that. Peter began where the Christian must. If someone is going to stand before you with an open Bible and an open text and open notes and begin to fix their mouths to say that they are Christians and that they are teachers of the Lord Jesus Christ and preachers of his gospel, then they had better fix their mouths to begin here when they offer hope. Your position in Christ and the finished work of Christ and the person of Christ. Because this is the foundation of the believer's hope. That's the foundation of the believer's hope. Whether in trials or sufferings, in the, in the face of uh, the last enemy death, it is inconsistent and callous for a person who claims to be a believer to offer a false hope to unbelievers, such as man-centered mantras telling them, we will get through this together, telling them, stay strong, stay positive. Even the hashtag social media campaigns that play on the emotions and gather a consensus around the trial, but never really addresses man's sin nature and how that sin nature has alienated he or she from God. To do anything except that is to peddle a false hope. It is to claim that the terms of peace somehow have been altered. It is hopeless to disguise hope in man's performance or his state of mind. That is hopelessness. And the apostles don't do that anywhere in the New Testament. It is hopeless to claim that somehow positive thinking will remedy the world's ills. That's hopelessness. Peter, however, began his encouragement toward Christians with what God had accomplished for sinners. And so he wrote to those of specific regions and he identified them as the chosen. The chosen. And you see that at the end of verse 1 of chapter 1. The chosen. Some translations put it as the ESV says, the elect. The elect. Those who are appointed to salvation by God himself. Brought to glory by God himself. But in either case, these people are the chosen. That's who Peter was focused on. Peter was focused on offering eternal hope 
to believers. He didn't go about offering hope unilaterally to a world who hated Christ. Because there is no hope for them. They can stay positive. They can stay temporally strong. They can stay very, very active. And they can certainly try to stay healthy and wear masks. But none of that will reconcile them to God. They can vote in large numbers. None of those things reconcile them to God uh, with respect to their nature. So Peter identified first the group to whom he wanted to offer hope. They are those whom God has appointed and elected unto salvation in the churches to whom Peter wrote. That's who he offered hope to. I've said it before. Many times an unbelieving world in the midst of something and all the things that we're going through ask, where are the Christians? We're here. But we don't have outside of the biblical gospel that tells you to repent of your sins, fall on your face, trust in God alone. We don't have any mantras to pretend that you can make it through anything related to eternal judgment. We don't have those for you, nor should we pretend to. We have the gospel, and that's what we proclaim. That's what we say. That's where we are. That's where we can be found. And so Peter is addressing them. They are aliens, not in the terrestrial sense, but those who would be considered immigrants. They were those who were scattered by dispersion of Jews throughout the Roman Empire, whose physical and geographical home on this earth was Israel. And so they have been pushed out from that region to the other regions. But more than Jews, they are believers. They're Christians who find their homes in the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In verse 1 it said, and that's important because you're looking at something of a very historical situation. A biblical and historical situation. Where you can point to regions within the construct of the world at that time and say, this is who Peter is speaking to. He's not speaking to a, 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 a fanciful group of people in a vacuum to whom he's trying to address without being very specific. The group is certainly broad enough to encompass believing Jews and likely some of the Gentiles, but they are in specific regions. And their faith was so, listen to this, their faith was so strong they suffered for it. That's how strong their faith was, that they suffered for their faith. And Peter himself identifies himself to them. He identifies himself at the beginning of his epistle in verse 1. At the very beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the office to which Christ directly and specifically appointed Peter to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And to feed the Lord's sheep after he restored him. Recorded for us in John chapter 21 verse 17. Peter was far removed from the events that we are beginning to look at and have looked at and will continue to look at in Matthew. He's far removed at the time of this epistle from the events uh, where he was in personal denial of the Lord at the mock trial of Christ in Matthew chapter 26 verse 72. You see that all those things play into the focus uh, that Peter has when he begins to encourage and exhort uh, believers. But in this epistle, as you read it, what you'll notice is he is armed with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's armed with a boldness in Christ, with a compassion and desire to see Christians walking upright in the way of truth. 
He wants to see them in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 23 say that. And he had demonstrated by his own example, by his own example, that the believer's hope is in Christ alone. He showed that to the people. And so it is clear as to what standard Peter called the believers to hope. And I've said it before, all efforts to stimulate hope are not equal, especially today. They're not equal. Because some men come along, and they were doing it in this time, and they were doing it in the Old Testament time, during the prophets of old. But some men call for hope in their personal experiences. Some men call for hope in the results of their quote-unquote ministries. Some men call for hope in feelings and vague reassurances. However, Peter invoked the standard to which all men must hold to have real hope. First, he called for a hope rooted in divine election. The doctrine of divine election. Whereby God has appointed a people for his own glory, by his own choosing, by his own power, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved and to be brought into the glory of his kingdom. That's what the hope is rooted in. And by implication, we understand that's why that doctrine is under so much attack. The doctrine of divine election. The sound doctrine, as I mentioned, by which the Father appoints and shows for himself those who were to receive salvation, faith, and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that is on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. That's the foundation of true hope. What Christ has accomplished, not what man has accomplished but what Christ has accomplished. It is that God himself has set Christ forth uh, to be the propitiation, that is the satisfaction of wrath for the sins of the elect. This is to whom Peter writes when he wants to offer hope. This is, quote unquote, his audience, true believers. And he identifies this by calling them the chosen or chosen ones or the elect. That is not a general or hypothetical group. It's a specific group. The Bible doesn't deal with generalities and hypotheticals. Wicked men do. The Bible deals with very specific things about very specific people in very specific times. And the implications run the full force of linear time ahead. This was not the general populace that Peter was talking to. Now I'm saying these things because I'm making a distinction between the hustlers and peddlers of false hope today who are very vague and reassuring to everyone. And yet in this context, it's a very specific thing. People to whom God had appointed, had appointed uh, his salvation, they themselves have hope, eternal hope. And so in verse... Uh, in verse 1 and verse 2, after Peter identifies himself in verse 2 particularly, he identifies the standard. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He identifies that the foundation of Christian hope is, is built on the standard of God's foreknowledge related to 
the doctrine of divine election. The doctrine of divine election. It answers the question that you may be asking or may ask in looking in the, at this in further study. Who chose these believers? Who chose them? It wasn't Peter. It was God. Peter was simply sent to them. How were they chosen? And then this passage answers also how are they kept and sustained as chosen ones, even in times of unspeakable trials and suffering and temporal hopelessness. So the believer's hope is anchored, fastened, founded upon the doctrine of divine election. God's foreknowledge and salvation. God choosing whom he will, passing over those who are not his and choosing for himself a people whom he will and bringing them to glory and salvation in his name. As simple as this may sound, it is often not said today as it ought to be. You can tell by the features of hope that is offered to people in the midst of everything that's happening. Hope in political process. Hope in, hope in the fact that, again, the year has switched. Hope in all these things except the fact of what Christ has accomplished. To me, that's an anchored hope because for the believer, that stands for all time. Through eternity. So that's the hope upon which we find ourselves and the hope of the church. But it is through the foreknowledge of God that these believers were chosen and they were appointed to be heirs of eternal life in Christ by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit is identified here then as the agent through which the work of sanctification, that is not only the positional sense of that, which is to say that the believer is declared cleansed by God, but yet in his life, in his or her life, they go through an ongoing period of being cleansed. That's called progressive sanctification. But they're, but they're cleansed, and this has taken place to cleanse them of their sin and to commend them to God based on what Christ has accomplished. So the foundation of their hope is not their hope. The false teacher and the false teachers of the word faith movement and false teacher uh, false teachers such as Ken Copeland and others have often said, place faith in your faith. False teachers such as uh, Fred Price and others. Faith in your faith, mangling what is said in Romans 1. That somehow if you have faith in your faith, then now you go to some higher level of understanding. But no, you're not the, the foundation of your faith is not your faith. The foundation of your hope is not your hope. The foundation of your hope is what Christ has accomplished. The foundation of your faith is what Christ has accomplished and who he is. And so therein, your faith propels you forward uh, to live in the face of suffering, not to name and claim all kinds of uh, temporal blessings for yourself. When Romans 1 talks, because I believe that Paul and Peter were very closely aligned, not only in what they were saying because of their attachment to the person of Christ, uh, but also their... their uh, their willingness to, 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 to hear one another as apostles of Christ. And I say that because even in Romans 1, Paul addresses that. When he says from faith to faith, he's talking about the inception of faith, Christ being the source, to the outcome of faith. It's no accident then that Peter uses the same words in verse 9 of this chapter. Obtaining what? As the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
It's not this circular faith in your faith. It's you're looking at the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. And all of that is anchored by what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so the preacher, the Christian, has something far greater than to just tell people 2021 is their year. It's to tell people Christ has accomplished something 2,000 years ago in temporal time, decreed beforehand in eternity to establish for himself a people. And no one can take away that reality. No one can take away that which has taken place by eternal decree. It's amazing how in this epistle that that which is set before the Christians in the arena of hope is doctrine. It's doctrine. It's not even that Peter jumps into all the things that the Roman emperors have done wrong. He's not jumping into all of the failed policies of the empire. He's not even jumping into all the things that he suffered under that empire. He's saying, no, your hope is anchored to what Christ has accomplished, to what God has accomplished through Christ by the Spirit and what he continues to accomplish. And if the Christian, if you look at your life, you can actually look at that hope and see what Christ has accomplished in you. And therein you can test and measure, am I aligned to the eternal hope that is held before me? And so here, that is what is taking place. But to this effect, it is essentially saying that the, uh, the cleansing work of the Spirit, the cleansing work of the Spirit um, produces a sure hope because, because it eliminates alienation from God. It eliminates alienation from God. It, eliminate, it eliminates abiding in His wrath. It eliminates condemnation before Him. That's even what Paul says in Romans 8. So uh, obviously we focus on what Peter has said, but it is certainly good to focus on the apostolic testimony overall. This work of sanctifying those who are believers is the Spirit's work. The believers certainly have a part to play in conforming themselves in holiness to what is said and written and taught by Christ and His apostles and also aligning their will to His related to acting upon what is taught. But Peter wrote that these believers were by evidence of their obedience to Christ and being sprinkled with His blood chosen ones. And so to be the elect is to have for yourself an eternal hope that no one can take away and that no one can shake, no matter what happens. And so we look at that and you begin to even in your mind as, as we have been discussing this and, and working through this, you see the distinction already between how the world at large and even modern evangelical hustlers, word of faith hustlers, how they come before Roman Catholic hustlers, personality gurus, how they begin to, you know, all this life coaching, they begin to stand before you and offer all this talk of hope without ever tying it to anything related to what Christ has accomplished to redeem souls who, are, uh, who, who need to be saved. And so the hope that is set before the Christian is a living hope. It is a salvation that is fixed. It is anchored in what Christ has accomplished. You can see the historical and biblical basis for it. You can see the spiritual implications of it. And Peter 
pointed them to it, the Christians here, when they were in the midst of suffering. And more so than suffering in and of itself, because I don't want to make light of what is happening in the world before us, but I certainly want to put it in its proper context. The kind of suffering that I'm talking about, that Peter said what he said here, was that Christians were being hunted and killed. They were being hunted by the empire and killed. I'm not saying that that day is here now, but that day is certainly approaching. That day is approaching because the Bible says that it's plain that it's approaching and it happens in waves. But even here, I don't say that to cause fear, I say that to cause sobriety. Even here, the believer's hope is not what the world is doing or isn't doing. The believer's hope is fixed to what the word of God says Christ has accomplished. And so that is what Peter sets before them. He doesn't set before them fear. He tells them live holy in light of everything. He doesn't set before them a hopelessness. We need a new Caesar. He tells them, no, you need to focus on who will rule and reign as the king of kings. And so that hope is fixed. You don't see any fear in this passage as we'll work through it in the days ahead, even if we go back to Matthew and come back to this at another time. But I I would commend this to study. You don't see any fear. Peter's not holding any fear before the Christians. He's telling them to fasten themselves to the sure hope that they have in Jesus Christ. A hope that not only doesn't make them ashamed, but he explains the features of that hope. And when we're together next time, uh, we'll look at that uh, with respect to a little more detail uh, in the verses that follow. Let's pray.